0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, in the final episode of our Cost of the Crown series, a coronation for a new king. But will we get Charles the Reformer, or more of the same?
2: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?
1: In a ceremony tomorrow, Charles will finally receive the crown. At 74 years old, he will be the oldest monarch ever to take the throne. At the same age, his mother was gearing up for her golden jubilee. For the Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland, this means there will be a very different tone from the last coronation.
3: says
2: I here present unto you Queen Elizabeth, your
3: undoubted queen. There was something very forward-looking in 1953 because the country was crowning a very young queen. The public had no idea of her, really, and that tapped into all kinds of quite mythic motifs and ideas. That fitted very much the role that we demand of a constitutional monarch, which is in some ways they be an empty vessel that we can project whatever we like onto. So, to that stirring music, majesty, splendour and beauty pass from our sight. That isn't the case with him. He's been around forever. It's, after all, one of my rare opportunities to uh, stir things up. His views are comprehensive and, crucially, they are known.
0: They're known as the black spider memos, letters scrawled in his own handwriting, the words of a man accused of being a meddling prince.
3: With him, it requires us, almost as the audience, to suspend our disbelief and our knowledge and watch a very different spectacle.
0: As the build-up to the coronation of King Charles III on May 6 continues, many questions are being asked about just how rich the British royal family actually is and where its money comes from. And because of the findings from our investigation,
1: we'll also watch tomorrow's events unfold, knowing a lot more about the personal wealth of the monarch to be crowned. With an estimated private fortune of £1.8 billion to his name, there are questions as to why it's the taxpayer paying the bill for the ceremony during a cost-of-living crisis.
3: In an era where people don't think the monarchy is the product from the heavens, that the curtain has been pulled back. This isn't sort of out of a fairy tale. This is very human arrangements that have somehow allowed this one family to amass enormous wealth. I think it could make things tougher if questions start being asked about the institution itself.
1: From The Guardian, I'm Maeve McClenkin. Today in Focus, Cost of the Crown Part 5 The King and His Coronation Jonathan, what can we expect from tomorrow's ceremony and how will it be different to Queen Elizabeth's coronation 70 years ago?
3: Well, I think on TV you'll have all your constitutional experts pointing out tiny little bits of ritual that may have been deleted or uh, truncated. You know, a few things that were, I think, perhaps just seen as too old-fashioned and even semi-feudal.
2: Next, enclosed in a small bag, an ingot of pure gold of one pound weight.
3: There was, I mean, amazing to think this. that In 1953, the Lord Great Chamberlain presented the monarch with a wedge of gold of a pound weight, that is going to be scrapped. Maybe in straightened times, the idea of a pound of solid gold being handed over to the king just doesn't sit right. And last time, there was a great presence of the royal dukes and the peerage, lots of members of the lords. In their lovely robes, we watched them one by one and two by two entering this historic building on this great occasion. This time, there's going to be less of that. They're lovely shoulder cloaks and capes of vermine white. An interesting point of continuity. Charles, before he took over, back in the 90s, said that he wanted to be known as defender of faith, meaning faith in general, in his oath. I've always felt the Catholic subjects of the sovereign are equally as important as the Anglican ones or the Protestant ones. Likewise, I think that... Islamic subjects or the Hindu subjects or the Zoroastrian subjects of the sovereign are of equal and vital importance. The way it's going to work is that the Archbishop of Canterbury will say the words, defender of the faith, singular, meaning the faith of the Protestant Church of England. Charles will sort of assent to that, but he won't utter those words himself. And there are nods to a more inclusive, more diverse Britain, just because he is prime minister, Rishi Sunak, will give a reading from the Bible. He is, of course, a Hindu, and the Church of England rules bar other faiths from taking an active part in a Christian service. And there will be some participation and presence anyway of representatives of other faith. Uh, there will be also the participation of women bishops of the Church of England. So there are, you know, some nods to the fact that it's 2023 rather than 1953.
2: The representatives of Salam and Pakistan, of South Africa and New Zealand.
3: And there will be fewer representatives from the Commonwealth, also recognising that Britain's reach has sort of shrunk in, because when the Queen took over, the people still talked of a British empire, and she talked of an imperial family. People don't talk that way now. But look, they are not going to go light on the pageantry. There's still so much left. To the naked eye, it will look uh, fabulously elaborate. There'll be the Diamond Jubilee State Coach, black and gold. I mean, it's going to be part sort of Lord of the Rings, part Game of Thrones, and lots of costume. Um, you know, he wears a, a robe of state when he arrives, but that will be changed. There'll be different clothing for the anointing when he moves to the coronation chair, and that chair has been used in coronations going back 700 years. This family love reminding people that the monarchy is in it for the long game. And if you're a Republican, you'll think it's sort of Ruritanian flummery. If you're a monarchist, you'll think it's gorgeous and beautiful ritual. And maybe in a funny way, it's both.
1: One of the big changes that I can't imagine will go down too well with those Republicans you just mentioned, uh, which was announced earlier this week, is this so-called homage of the people, where all those watching on TV and pubs are invited to say at certain point, I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty and your heirs and successors according to law, so help me God. What do you think about that and, and will you be standing up and joining in?
3: I definitely won't be. Um, so, you you know, you can rest assured on that front. I do think this is an odd development. It felt to me as if they're sort of pushing their luck a bit because there is, it's small, but polls show about a quarter of the public are, let's put it this way, sceptical about a hereditary head of state. But most people tend to kind of shrug and get get on with their lives and not bother. But This is pushing people a bit far by asking not only that they just, you know, indulge there being a coronation and a monarchy and and let it pass, but instead to participate in it. And I think the head of the anti-monarchy group Republic, Graham Smith, put it quite well, saying in a democracy, it's the head of state who should be swearing allegiance to the people, not the other way around. And that, I have to say, is exactly how I reacted when I heard this. It is a bit tin-eared. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if quite a lot of people think, well, no thanks.
1: So it seems like there's this balancing act between reminding us of the bits of history and the continuation of traditions that they want us to look at and then a kind of brushing to the side of some of the slightly more archaic and and perhaps less palatable elements that we might have seen in the past. And you know, we know that at the moment of the late Queen's death, the crown passed to Charles and he became king, which does beg the question, what is the purpose of tomorrow's proceedings? Why have this big ceremonial hoopla about this?
3: Yeah, I think it's a good question why we still have a coronation. Plenty of monarchies around Europe, around the rest of the world, have abandoned it. And as you say, you know, he became king the second the last queen drew her final breath. That's the nature of the system. Quite a handy system, I think, for them, because it means there's never a transition where people might start debating the institution. In a way, I think the point of it is that it's always been done and monarchy is about tradition. And, you know, even progressives and liberals should be careful about knocking tradition. People like it. Uh, It gives people a feeling of being grounded and rooted in a very fast and changing world. And that's the monarchy's big pitch, is to say at least, you know, some things are dependable and that it performs for the country the role in a way that the family rituals do for families, that, you know, our lives may have changed, but we all, you know, go home for Christmas kind of thing. And if you started saying, what's the point of the coronation? Well, then you're just a couple of moves away from saying, what's the point of the monarchy? So instead, it relies on a kind of emotional pull, on spectacle, the ritual, the ceremony, the continuity with the past. And that's what they're there for. That's the point. It isn't a side product, it's the purpose of the whole institution. The Queen embodied that because she'd been around so long. Now it's the institution that embodies that. And therefore, the trappings of the institution are that much more
2: important. <laughs>
1: So, you know, even though this is supposedly a slimmed down version of of what we saw all those years ago, it's still a huge enterprise that's been months or maybe even years in the making. Do we have any idea of the cost of this huge event that's happening tomorrow?
3: So the palace always keep these things a little bit under wraps, but reported is that the brilliantly named Operation Golden Orb could cost around £100 million. She's a colossal figure. It will be taxpayers' money. Uh, It's a state event in a time where money is short and uh, circumstances are very tight for people. And so that will be interesting, too, whether people just think, yeah, good, we love a good show, or do people after it say, well, why on earth were we spending that kind of money? The interesting thing to my mind about it is there were always sort of hints when Charles was Prince of Wales, that he really had limited patience for all that stuff because of his quite spiritual view about simpler life, his ecological view about consuming less. And in a way, this would have been his first chance to demonstrate that. And yet, as far as I can see, there hasn't been any big, major scaling down. People always talk about the kind of Scandinavian or you know, Dutch bicycling monarchies where, you know, the king would go around to capital city on a bicycle. Uh, This was his moment to signal that and he hasn't taken that. And I don't think actually from his point of view that's necessarily unwise because if he had arrived on a sort of electric bike and all the robes and crowns and scepters were made of sustainable biodegradable bamboo... I think you know that's maybe what people would have thought if we, when Charles was in his 30s I think it would have it would have damaged the very institution that he and his family are absolutely committed in the name of self-preservation to maintain
1: yeah, that's really interesting. We've had this sense of a, a reformer waiting in the wings, but actually now we've had almost eight months of Charles as king. And I wonder, yeah, what you think about the, the little insights we've got from his actions, or indeed his inaction in that time, what that might tell us about what we can expect going forward.
3: Yeah, I think it has given us a bit of a clue. I spoke to one of his aides who worked with him for a long while and said they have noticed this has been going on for sometime even before his mother died, but of dialing down the public statements on points of controversy. When he used to absolutely run towards controversy, it seems that he has really internalised the lesson from his mother, which was, if you're the monarch, you know, you cannot get involved in anything.
1: This morning, with almost a month to go before Charles's coronation, this first glimpse at the Royal Invitation, a hand-painted watercolour featuring flowers and an ancient figure from British
3: folklore. I thought one interesting clue was provided by this invitation, which was informal in a way, full of very interesting sort of rural, bucolic, almost pagan... Imagery, it was something out of Midsummer Night's Dream or, um, you know, the sort of Merry England idea of it. I think that might be what it's like, where there's a little bit of informality, a little bit of playfulness, and that's how he'll express his break from the monarchy of the past. It will be just a little bit less stuffy, but it won't be less luxurious and it won't be any less proper. It's a little bit like those big companies where they do slightly jokey packaging, you know, the sort of innocent smoothie of monarchy, you know, where it's a bit matey <laughs> and a bit more informal, but it's still a big capitalist company.
1: Mm, interesting. And also given, as we've we've already discussed, his age, he doesn't necessarily have decades upon decades to to make changes subtly. So do do you think that that might become a factor in his I don't know his his impatience of of seeing things take a shift forward?
3: Yeah I think it's interesting about impatience because gosh if anyone has learned about patience it's mm-hmm. him waiting till he's 74 to do the job that he was trained for all his life. I mean how many of us would be patient through that? And there was frustration was such a feature Of his adult life. It's an impression and it could be wrong. I mean, he may surprise us all. But on the evidence we've got so far, he doesn't seem like a restless reformer who, now that he's finally got the keys, is determined to turn the place upside down.
1: And of course, it's not just Charles being crowned tomorrow. Beside him on her own throne will be Queen Camilla. And there was a time when that would have just seemed unimaginable to the British public. Do you think this marks the final acceptance of of what at one point was known as the other woman?
3: I do think it does mark that acceptance for her. She was really cast as a sort of villain, particularly in the tabloid papers in the period of the sort of Diana Wars. And that is an amazing journey by her. Credit to the press operation around the palace it hasn't hurt her in terms of the tabloids that there is a new villain in town but particularly given I think you know the word for it but kind of the misogyny of the, of much of the press the the villainess in the form of Meghan and I understand that you don't like Meghan Markle you've made it so clear a number of times on this program a number of times, but yet you continue to trash her. OK, I'm done with this. No, no, no. Sorry. No, uh, sorry. Do you know what? That's pathetic. You can trash me, mate, but not my no, own no, thought. no, no. See you later.
2: I'm being... Sorry.
3: And the fact that, you Does know, there's a storyline in the soap opera in which Camilla is on the other side of that divide, that only helps because they're too busy turning their fire on the Sussexes to have anything left for Camilla.
1: Yeah, and in the soap opera of the Windsors, this is going to be a kind of key end of series scene, I guess, you know, it it almost feels to me like that kind of family wedding when you're kind of cringing when you know you have to invite the aunts and uncles who aren't going to get on with each other. In the ceremony itself are going to be sat a family that are quite divided at the moment. You know, we've got Harry sitting on his own a couple of rows back, there's there's Prince Andrew. How much pressure do you think there is tomorrow to project a united front?
3: Well, you are completely right um, that for all the business about, you know, the Sword of Mercy and the King Edward throne and so on, what people are actually interested in is, did I see a side-eye glance from Kate, you know, thrown towards Harry or whatever? Even if, you know, Hugh Edwards on the TV is trying to direct us to higher matters, it's that family drama and soap opera that will have the world's attention. I've always thought that, Harry and Meghan are actually among the most hard-working royals. If the function of the job is to provide a constant stream of tabloid and soap opera interest, they are overperforming.
0: After weeks of will they won't they speculation, we have the answer. Harry's coming but Meghan isn't. A coronation compromise, and this is a big decision.
1: So, apart from this sideshow of who's sitting where, who's wearing what, you know, Johnny, I don't imagine you'll be preparing your coronation quiche and and waving your flags, but there will be millions of people who are happy to pop on the TV and watch this play out. Is there a role there? You know, after so many years of of misery with the pandemic, is there actually a kind of a benefit, a positivity around having this moment of national unity?
3: Definitely. I mean, I think even if you think we should choose our head of state by different means and that we should elect it. This is uh, the system we have, and it's very meaningful to lots of people. If you're a Republican, you need to reckon with that and wrestle with that. And people love an excuse to have a party and to share a common experience. They also wanted to be together and put the TV on, when England play in the European Championships or the World Cup, or Scotland play, or Wales or Northern Ireland. I'll be watching it. Because, like it or not, it's a big moment in the national history of the country, uh, in our collective story. How people respond, what signals are sent—all of that is gripping, actually, in my view. There's going to be street parties around the corner here. I'll be there. You know, these moments where we are a collective, and where we're a society rather than just you know atomized individuals. People like them. I like them. I think we should seize on them. I myself don't happen to think we need it to be done by heredity. I think we could celebrate uh, a national figurehead that we chose. But um, but at the moment, that's a minority view. And when when it is, it doesn't mean you ignore the rest of the country and what's going on and what's important to you know your fellow citizens.
1: Well, you say that, but how monarchist are we as a nation, really? You know, are, are we a nation of shy royalists or, or actually are we supposedly subjects who are desperate to become citizens instead? And, and how popular is Charles?
3: Well, this really interests me because for a long while the institution was popular because the person who embodied the institution was popular. And it meant Republicans could really make no headway at all because people thought you were just against the Queen and people liked the Queen. He is not in that position, and therefore it will be fascinating to watch how that affects the institution itself. According to UGov polling, he was in the mid-40s approval rating until his mother died, and then he went up by about 10 points, but it's only to 55%. But I think it's interesting to note that even though the institution itself is popular, It's not overwhelmingly popular. You know, 58% say they prefer monarchy. Only 26% want an elected head of state. Republicans are always around that sort of quarter mark. But the thing I found really interesting is the generational numbers. And there you see that Britain's aged between 18 and 24, only 32%, one third, favour monarchy. And 38% would prefer an elected head of state. Not a majority, but a plurality. That could be a position that young people have and that they always grow out of.
1: Young people not caring about the royal family is because young people have so much to care about right now. We care about uh, climate breakdown and the fact that we may not even have a planet uh, to have royals on. We care.
3: But it could also mean something else. It could be that a lot of young people took the side of Harry and Meghan and they were against the rest of the family and thought that, you know, we were going to get a more diverse, inclusive royal family and then saw you know how Meghan has in effect been kind of exiled and maybe that has made them disenchanted with the whole institution and maybe that feeling will last and if that's true that's a problem for Charles and actually it's a longer term problem for William and beyond because it suggests that the enduring support may be shifting
1: yeah and i mean you know you compared this moment of the coronation to to coming together as a nation to watch the world cup but actually there's something deeper and very different here is that it's really based on this inherent principle that some people are born more important than others. And I wonder if that fits in our modern society, you know, where we believe in human rights, we believe in equality. Is there even a place for monarchy anymore? Why are we still suspending our disbelief about Charles and his human flaws and going through this pomp and ceremony when at its very core the concept of a monarchy seems to be quite problematic in where we are as a nation.
3: Yeah, I think those arguments are going to be heard quite loudly in the 14 other countries where Charles is automatically head of state. I mean, you saw Barbados become a republic. I think there may be more of those countries who say, come on, really, a head of state who we don't choose, who's from another country? So I would be watching republican sentiment in Australia, New Zealand, and the Caribbean. This Commonwealth of Nations, that wealth belongs to England. That wealth is something we never shared in. So for us in Jamaica, the monarchy is a harsh reminder for unfortunate past. In this country, look, heredity not just doesn't fit with the politics of now, it hasn't fit with the politics of the last hundred years in the democratic era, in the era of universal suffrage. You'd think Mm -hmm. the idea of a job allocated by bloodline would have gone out a long time ago. All I would say to those who, like me, do believe in a republic, we have to reckon with the fact that there is something that is not rational, that is emotional, and that does like the suggestion of continuity, the idea that this is a link to our earlier selves, but the biggest asset monarchists had, uh, has gone, and that was Elizabeth II. And without her there, at least these arguments and these questions can be, and will be, I think, raised.
1: With news this week, just days before the event, that the Home Office have sent official warnings to anti-monarchists who might be planning to protest the coronation tomorrow. You know, detailing the new police powers. Is there a sense? Do you think that the institution is aware that its popularity might be slipping within certain demographics? And and what else should we make of this crackdown on protests?
3: The timing of this is really unfortunate because you've got the security minister, Tom Tugendhat, touring the studio saying... This is a major moment for the United Kingdom, but it's also a major moment for us to showcase our liberty and our democracy. And that's what this security arrangement is doing. What we're doing is we're empowering people to come together freely and openly. And we're demonstrating that security can be a liberator in a democracy, not like in authoritarian states where it's a controller even as the British government has fast-tracked a whole lot of legislation ahead of the coronation, which actually really limits and cracks down on the right... protest. I mean, there's now a 12-month prison sentence. If you're blocking roads, six-month prison sentence or an unlimited fine. If you're locking yourself, chaining yourself to buildings or other people. And to collide this with monarchies is just really unfortunate. You'll remember those people who felt the hand of authority on their shoulder for just simply holding up blank sheets of paper against Charles when he acceded to the throne last autumn. So they're doing, they're sort of punching that bruise again. But obviously, they felt they wanted to make sure they had every possible tool in the box to squash any protest that may come this weekend.
1: Coming up, will Charles open up the monarchy to new levels of scrutiny? Jonathan, as you know, the investigations team has been working for some time looking at this murky and opaque world of royal wealth. And given the information we've revealed through this investigation, that King Charles personally has at least £1.8 billion to his name, do you think that he'll take a different approach to the transparency around royal finances?
3: No, um, I don't. I think he would rather this stuff stays under wraps. And he's Helped by the fact that apart from us, not many people raise this stuff. And without a hostile press, and there isn't one for the Royal Family, there's a pretty sympathetic press, they will absolutely lap up the soap of Harry and Meghan and all that, for sure. But to probe into the actual mechanics of the institution, it seems somehow the Royal Family have done such a good job of making it seem somehow vaguely even unpatriotic to do that. And He will be allowed to continue to keep this stuff in the dark. All of that said, if he makes a few missteps, and it only has to be one or two things, then it's open season. And then, yes, absolutely, people will go for questions about the finances. They'll go for everything. But as things stand, I don't think there's much pressure on him to do it. And therefore, I I suspect he won't feel the need to do it.
1: And I mean, that's despite the fact that we know it's, it's taxpayer money often, beyond his private wealth that's been inherited over the years. You know, we're going to be paying many millions for this coronation. We found out that there's tens of millions every year from the Treasury in the sovereign grant that goes towards their running costs. So now that we know that he has this huge treasure chest of his own, do you think it's time to have a rethink about that element? Do we deserve to know more about the public funding? And is it time to have a debate about whether the levels that they're given are actually right?
3: I would be all for it. Um, I think we should discuss these things. It is a vast concentration of wealth in the hands of a single family passed down through bloodline. There is no argument of equality or social justice that could possibly defend that. And yet, I think people think partly because of the way the Queen herself lived, that yeah, yeah, they've got this money notionally, but they don't really kind of... It's not really theirs day to day. They don't really spend it. The royal family have done a brilliant job of making blurry what is the Windsors, what is the Crown, what is the countries, and the you know the Guardian's Cost of the Crown series has brilliantly sort of unpacked a lot of that and disaggregated it. But I think it, we're fighting against an entrenched. System that has you know more supporters and more voices than we do um, in order to keep people looking elsewhere. So it's an uphill battle, but I think once people do look at it, then I think they will see that there are some serious questions here to answer.
1: It's been interesting to see that there's been quite a muted response from the Labour Party on these issues. You know, we've known historically the Conservatives tend to be very supportive of the Royals, and indeed were crucial in the the creation of the 2011 sovereign grant, but Labour, on the other hand, you might expect a different position on. But we just haven't seen that, which I guess begs the question: Is that coming? Is it even part of their their interests anymore? If we do see a future Labour government, can we expect changes?
3: Yeah, I think I would definitely would not hold your breath for the Labour government to do anything on this. Labour governments, if anything, have actually been traditionally even more royalist than the Conservatives in this sense, which is they need to always prove from those who would cast them as somehow less patriotic, they have to bend over backwards. You know, Keir Starmer will arrive, if he does, as Prime Minister, wanting to prove to people that he is every bit the British Prime Minister, that he will be seen with the armed forces, he will be seen with a flag, and he will 100% be at the monarchy's side. He will not be wanting to ask tough questions or make life in any way uncomfortable for them. Um, so I think if you were going to get a new financial settlement with the palace, it would probably have to be a Conservative government to do it. Wow.
1: So finally, Jonathan, you know, I'm quite surprised given all you've said that you said you're going to you're going to be taking part in things tomorrow, not even just watching on TV, but maybe going to a, a street party or two. W- why is that? Is this not a time for, for protest? Why why get
3: involved? No, I sort of think that, you know, if you oppose the system, you can sit in a darkened room with your arms folded saying "Bah, humbug, or you can say, look, this is the country you live in now, you do want it to change. But for now, this is a moment where your neighbours, your friends are celebrating, and it would be a pretty sort of bleak kind of life if you sat out every moment that you didn't fully approve of you know we've all gone through some pretty tough times in recent years and people are out having fun i'm not going to be the one to say you really ought not to be doing this wagging a scolding finger at them um i will certainly be watching it all because you know these are moments where you get an insight into the country and how it is and where things stand and if you're fascinated by the country you live in and the people you you know you live among then how would you know you sh- you shouldn't be able to resist a moment like this um i will not be myself raising a glass to the institution i think it needs to and should change i think we can move on from it but i'm also aware that it means a lot to a lot of people so uh, there's some sort of humility in that perhaps <laughs>
1: Jonathan, thank you so much. A really fascinating conversation on the eve of a a momentous day.
3: Thank you, Maeve.
1: Thanks to Jonathan Friedland. And you can read his opinion piece tomorrow, wherever you get The Guardian. That's it for our Cost of the Crown miniseries. This investigation was a huge team effort. Our thanks and a massive shout out to David Pegg, Rob Evans, Felicity Lawrence, Henry Dyer, Severin Carroll, Manisha Ganguly, Rupert Neat, Greg Wood, Harry Davies, David Conn, Amna Modine, Lucy Hoff, Maya Wolf Robinson, Rachel Hall, and Richard Nelson. Our editors were Paul Lewis and Rachel Aldroyd. This episode was produced by Rose De Larabietti and Lucy Hoff. This series was produced by Lucy Hoff. It was presented by me, Maeve McLennigan. Sound by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. Today in Focus, we'll be back on Monday with the final episode of the Cotton Capital series.